Now, as we come to the book of Esther today, we come to what in one sense is the most remarkable book in the Bible. And that is because the name of God is not mentioned in this book at all. There's no mention of the name of God. You won't find it anywhere in this book. And that makes it an unusual book. Now, the heathen king is mentioned a 192 times. And prayer, therefore, is not mentioned. Wouldn't be since God is omitted. It's never quoted in the New Testament. There's not even a casual reference to it at all. But the superstition of the heathen is mentioned in lucky days, and we'll be introduced here into a pagan heathen court of a great world monarch who ruled over the then known world. This is an unusual book because of that. And it is an unusual book for another reason. It's named for a woman. Now, actually, there are only two books in the Bible named for women. I know someone is going to give me one of the epistles of John. I disagree with that, so don't submit that one to me. But Ruth and Esther are the two books named for women. And I've written on both of these books. The title of my book is Ruth, the Romance of Redemption. And the book of Esther is Esther, the Romance of Providence. And redemption is a romance. It's a love story. We love him because he first loved us. And he gave himself for us because he loves us. The book of Esther is the romance of providence. That is how God directs this material universe in which we live today. In fact, it's the way he directs all of his creation. But we're going to look in just a few moments at the meaning of this word providence. Now, why would God's name not be mentioned? And why then does it teach the providence of God? Well, let me say first of all, that since the name of God is not mentioned, there's not even a divine title or pronoun that refers to him. I'm told that in the Hebrew that there is one place where there's an acrostic that spells out deity, but I would not attach too much importance to that. Now, back in Deuteronomy, the 31st chapter, in verse 18, before God put them in the land, he outlined their history for them. He told them about the Babylonian captivity, and he also told about the Roman captivity. That is, that both Babylon and Rome would destroy the city of Jerusalem, and the people would be taken into captivity. It actually happened that way. But in Deuteronomy 31:18, God says this, He says, And I will surely hide my face in that day for all the evils which they have wrought, in that they have turned unto other gods. Now, that's a strange thing, is it not? That God says, when they go into idolatry, and they were sent into Babylonian captivity because of their idolatry, and now God says, I'm going to hide my face from them. In the book of Esther... God has hidden his face from them. But we can say, God standeth in the shadows, keeping watch over his own. So the book of Esther gives us a record of a group of people out of the will of God. Now, when Cyrus made the decree after the 70 years Babylonian captivity for the people to return back to the land, why, not all of them returned. Less than 60,000 returned, and we had the record of that in Ezra and Nehemiah. And we'll pick it up again in the two prophetic books of Haggai and Zechariah. These four books is the record of those that returned. But what about that larger segment that did not return back to the land? You have that same condition actually today. We speak of the nation Israel today. Well, there are probably two million that have returned, but there are about 16 million that are in the world today. So actually, the majority are not in the land at all. That 
is something I think that's evident. And I use that merely as a parallel to illustrate what it was in that day. And it would mean that several million of these people did not return to the land. They should have. God had commanded them to. Now, they're out of the will of God. The question is, do we have any record of these people, this large number that did not return to the land? Yes, and that record is in the book of Esther, and it is recorded here. In other words, we just have one page out of their history, one small item of their experience, and one scrap and shred of evidence in their voluminous records. And the little book of Esther becomes all-important for that reason. But in this, we see God, though they're not in his will, we see God directing them. How? By his providence. Now the question arises, what about the providence of God? What is the providence? Well, all the great doctrines that we have today, I believe, are taught in certain books of the Old Testament. You have redemption taught in the book of Exodus. You have, for instance, the love side of redemption taught in the book of Ruth. And in the book of Job, as we're going to see, it teaches repentance. And resurrection is taught in the book of Jonah. So the great doctrines of our Christian faith are taught in certain books. Now, the book of Esther gives us that, and it illustrates providence. Now, this means simply this. These people in a foreign land, out of the will of God, they have not obeyed his orders because his orders was to return to the land of Israel. They remained. They disobeyed. They forgot God. They're far from him, and they'll not call upon him. And when they first came into the land, why, they could say, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And they couldn't. They sat down. They wept when they remembered Zion, but now they've forgotten Zion. In fact, it's in rubble and ruins, and they don't want to go back there. And they made a covenant at the beginning that made my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I forget Zion, they've forgotten, and their tongue is silent in this book. They're not praising God at all, nor are they praying to him. That makes this, you see, a very remarkable book. But what about God? Well, he hasn't forgotten them. Now, how can God direct them if they've rejected him? Well, God does it by his providence. And the book of Esther teaches the providence of God. Now, what is providence? Will you forgive me if I'm theological for just a moment? If you want a definition, well, here's a theological definition. It's the means by which God directs all things, both animate, and inanimate, seen and unseen, good and evil, toward a worthy purpose, which means his will must finally prevail. Or as the psalmist said, his kingdom ruleth over all. And the New Testament in Ephesians 1.11, Paul says, "...who worketh all things according to the counsel of his will." So our God today, he's running the universe, friends. I guess that many of us thought it had slipped out from and under him. And Emerson was wrong when he said, things are in the saddle and they ride mankind. Well, things are riding mankind, but they're not in the saddle. God today is the one that's in the saddle. Now, there are three words that we need to keep before us to understand the providence of God in relation to the material universe and to man in particular. We have the word creation, and we understand by creation that God, by his quiet word, spoke this universe into existence. Do you have a better explanation? If you do, come up with it. I get, frankly, a little annoyed with the dogmatism of some of these half-baked scientists today, they're generally teaching today in some of our colleges, very candidly. Many of these men are not research scientists. They actually are not experts, but they speak as if they were expert, and they tell about how evolution, you know, formed man. Well, 
Will you tell me where all of the goo came from out of which this thing evolved? Where did the earth begin? Did it begin out of nothing? And don't tell me it was always here. Because if you do that, then you've got an infinite universe. And if you've got an infinite universe, you've got to have somebody that's infinite to run the thing. We're on the horns of a dilemma. Actually, there's only two explanations for this universe today. One is speculation. Evolution comes under that. But before it came along, and it's comparatively speaking recent, there were other explanations for the presence of the universe. All of them have been exploded today. And I think in time, evolution will fall by the wayside. It's speculation. Now we have... The other's revelation. And the only way that you and I, certainly as Christians, will ever understand how this universe began is by faith. We understand that God brought this universe that you and I live in into existence. And that's the only way that you and I can explain it. And it's by faith. And that is by revelation. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And either you believe in creation or you believe in speculation. There's no third explanation for the universe. That's creation. Then there's preservation. And that's a tremendous word. That means that somebody has to hold this thing together today. And we are told in Hebrews 1, 3, upholding all things by the word of his power. And as Paul says in Colossians 1, 17, and by him all things consist. That is, they hold together. What is the stickum that holds this universe together? What is it that's making it run just like clockwork today so they can send a man to the moon and plot exactly where the moon can be and they can send a little gadget out toward Mars and they know exactly where Mars will be? You say it's remarkable that man can do that. It's remarkable we got a universe that's running like clockwork. Who's running it? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is running it, upholding all things by the word of his power. Now, the third word is providence. And that's the word we're going to be looking at in the little book of Esther. Now, providence is the way that God is directing this universe. He's moving it into tomorrow. He's moving it into the future by his providence. Now, that means, and let me now get off of this theological high horse I'm on and come right down where we live today, right where the rubber meets the road. And when we get down there, we find out that providence goes something like this. Providence means to provide. God will provide. You remember, that's what Abraham said yonder on top of Mount Moriah. When Isaac said, where's the sacrifice? Abraham said, God will provide. Well, God provided 1,900 years after Abraham on the top of that same ledge that goes through Jerusalem on Golgotha, the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. And God provided a lamb. God will provide himself a lamb. And there's where the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world was offered. God provides. Now, providence means the hand of God in the glove of human events. And that means that when God's not at the steering wheel, he's the backseat driver. And he's the coach who calls signals from the bench. The way that God coaches the man on second base, that's the way that providence moves. It's the unseen rudder on the ship of state. He's the pilot at the wheel during the night watch. And as someone has said, he makes great doors swing on little hinges. Little babies cry, and a woman's heart was brought together down by the river Nile when Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe, and the Lord just pinched little Moses, and he let out a yelp. And this woman came and looked down at him. And God used that to change the destiny of a people, by the way. And in the book of Esther, we're going to find out one night a king couldn't sleep. And he didn't have any aspirin tablets, so he read some records. And it's a good thing he read them. It changed the destiny of a people. That's providence. And we'll see providence in this book. 
we are going to see in this remarkable book here, the permissive will of God. Now, that's the area where most Christians operate today, this area of the permissive will of God. Esther won a beauty contest. Now, somebody's going to say, you mean God approves of a beauty contest? I didn't say that. God, by his providence, saw that Esther won it. But they're not in the will of God. God doesn't approve of it. A great many Christians today are doing things God doesn't approve of. And they're wondering why they can't find the will of God. My friend, that's different to be guided by the will of God or by the providence of God. And there's a lovely thing said in the Word of God. He says, I'll guide them by mine eye. You know, you have to be close to a person to see their eye. And you have to stay very close to God, be in His will for Him to guide you. But most people are guided by the providence of God. I have a book on Esther. I hope you'll ask for the notes and outlines. They are available and free to you. But the book, we ask that you send a gift. And it's a very attractive book, one of the most attractive we've ever gotten out. We'll offer that for the book of Esther, of course. Now, let me say that we have an outline of this book that we'll follow as we go through. And I'll just give it to you as we go along. Now, we have here, first of all, in chapter 1, it may sound rather facetious to you, the wife who refused to obey her husband. Well, I guess that's not new today, but it was new back in that day when a wife refused to obey her husband. Verse 1, Esther, first chapter. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This is Ahasuerus, who reigned from India even unto Ethiopia over a hundred and seven and twenty provinces. Now, this word, Ahasuerus, actually is not a name. It's a title. This is the title that this king had. Now, there's been some question as who the king was. Who do we have reference to here? What king is it? Well, I'll take the position that it will be Xerxes, and I believe that's who it is, and I think the book and history will confirm that. But it's interesting to note, and I want to give you a little excerpt that comes from the book published by the British Museum in 1907. It says, "...the sculptors and inscriptions of Darius the Great on the rock of Behistun in Persia with the Cyrus Cylinders translation, it is established that Ahasuerus and Esther were the parents of the Cyrus of Isaiah 44, 28, 45, and 1, and so on. May I say to you, it's quite interesting that secular history confirms this. But I believe that we're talking now about the great Xerxes who reigned here over a kingdom, a great empire, from India, we're told, to Ethiopia, all through that great fertile crescent. That was the very heartland of the world. And a great many folk feel that that is the heartland of the world in which we live today. Well, this man reigned over it. He evidently was Xerxes. Now we're told that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes, his servants, the power of Persia, and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. Now, we are introduced here to a great pagan banquet in the palace of Xerxes. And they just had a banquet, you remember, over in the same place, only they had to put up tents. It was what we would call a very swanky affair. Cost millions of dollars. Now, we're going to see a banquet that was a banquet to end all banquets. This was a great one. Why did he do it? He's getting ready to make a campaign against Europe and Greece in particular. He was one of the rulers of the second great world kingdom that Daniel had mentioned, the Media Persian Empire. Now he's calling them together, apparently for the purpose of selling them on a program 
of going against Greece. And apparently it was a program that he needed to sell it, by the way, because I'm not sure they were too enthusiastic about it. We're told, verse 4, that when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and fourscore days. Now, this is quite remarkable. This is a program that lasted actually for six months. And that's a long time to have a program going on. It went a hundred and eighty days. The father of Louis XV of France was talking with the preceptor of the kingdom, and the father made the statement of Louis XV, said, how in the world could a man have patience enough to put on this kind of a program for six months? And the preceptor, he said, how in the world would he be able to pay for it? Well, that is something that apparently costs millions even in that day. Six months, he brings them together, and he attempts to sell them on this program of going against Greece. I'm sure that he displayed the fact that he was able to pay for the campaign. And it would always be nice when we go into a war, if we could just be sold before we go into it, whether we're going to be able to pay for it or not. Well, this king is selling it to his kingdom and is telling these rulers that he's able to pay for it. And he's also displaying the luxury and the opulence and the wealth of his kingdom. And it was a great pagan feast. It was a godless thing. And now we take a look at it, and there are those that try to find spiritual lessons here. Very candidly, I see none whatsoever. God's introducing us here into a pagan heathen court where decisions are made that affect the world. And it looks as if God is left out. But God wants you to know that he's overruling these circumstances and he's going to accomplish his own purpose. Now we're told in verse 5, when these days were fulfilled, the king made a feast unto all the people who were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now, here is a banquet that's going to last seven days, where were white, green, and blue hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen, and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The couches were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. Now, here is the description given to us. And there are those that attempt to find spiritual lessons in this description. I candidly do not see that there is any here. All God is telling us is that in this tremendous display, a gaudy display of wealth, the silver, the gold, and all the jewels, and these beautiful hangings, now, the ruins of those palaces are still over there. And a few years ago, they celebrated the 2500th anniversary of the Persian Empire. It's this empire we're talking about now. And there was a banquet made, and you remember all of the magazines and the TV news programs. They showed something of the tremendous display of wealth. It cost millions of dollars. And there was a great deal of criticism because in that land of poverty to have this display. Well, here's the first banquet, apparently, that was put on that we have any record of. And this banquet lasts seven days. And it was in that palace. They didn't have to build tents on the outside. These marble palaces with these gorgeous display of color in the drape and the awnings and all of that. It must have been a feast for the eye to have seen it. And this king is selling these people on that. One of the automobile dealers here in California was telling me that many years ago, not too many, several years ago, that when the Chevrolet changed their model and they called all the dealers back to Detroit, 
And they had a week of selling them, and it culminated in a great banquet to sell this new car. Well, human nature doesn't change back here at the very beginning here in the Media-Persian Empire. And this was, a great many think, was about 486 B.C. Why, he's getting ready to make this campaign. Well, this is a great selling effort on his part. And we read in verse 7, "...and they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being different one from another, in royal wine and abundance, according to the bounty of the king." In other words, everything was there in abundance. And this was a great banquet. And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel. And, of course, they weren't as civilized as we are today. Some of these businessmen tell me that it's almost impossible to go to some business meetings today where they have a cocktail party and not participate. One man told me that he had an executive position, and the owner or the president of this tremendous concern called him in. Notice at one of their social gatherings that he didn't drink. And of all things, I would think today that a president of a corporation would want a sober man. And he rebuked him because he hadn't participated in drinking the cocktails. But you see, we're civilized today, and we force them. Back there, they didn't force them at all. None did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also, Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, Vashti, she made a banquet for the women. You see, the men and the women didn't have a banquet together in that day. That was a breach of social custom to have done that. Again, my, they are uncivilized, aren't they, not to have it all together and to have a display of sex in some manner or other. But they really didn't. This is serious business. Not selling an automobile, but it's selling a war, a campaign against Greece. And so here, Vashti has a meeting of the women's auxiliary. They meet in a separate palace, the palace of Vashti, and she's entertaining the women at this banquet. Now, notice what happens, though. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, and that means he got drunk. This king overstepped himself. You didn't have to drink, but if you wanted to, you could have all you want. And the king apparently was not a teetotaler by any means, and he got drunk. Now, he did something that he would never have done had he been sober. He commanded a human... Vista, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains who served in the presence of Ahasuerus, the king. Now, this was quite an exercise in pronunciation here, but these men were the men who did the bidding of the king. And in his drunken condition, he commands them to go and bring Vashti the queen before the king, with the crown royal to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was fair to look on. You see now what he's doing here is a thing that's very ungentlemanly. It was positively crude. He never would have done it had he been sober. And he sends them to bring her. And apparently the reason that he's doing it, he displayed his glory and his riches And now he wanted them to see the glory of Vashti, his treasure, his jewel, as it were. Well, instead of displaying that, why, we find here that he reveals a family scandal. Notice what happens. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king enraged, and his anger burned in him. I think the king got up when he had sent these chamberlains. He said, now I've got a real surprise for you. I want you to see my queen, and she'll be brought in with the crown royal upon her. And she must have been a beauty. But when the order came over for her to come, she refused. And don't tell me women didn't have rights in that day, because this woman 
could turn this down. She certainly wasn't forced to come. Now, the king is drunk, and this makes him angry. To begin with, he's embarrassed. Imagine having one of these chamberlains come up and whisper in his ear. And the king says, well, where is the queen? And the chamberlain says, she won't come. He says, she's not coming. And now the king's embarrassed. He's got to offer some explanation to the guests that are there, and apparently several thousand at this banquet. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. And the next unto him was Karshina, Shether, Admetha, Tarshish, Merez, Messina, Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and who sat at the first in the kingdom. In other words, these men were his cabinet. They were the ones that met with him privately and personally, just like the cabinet meets with the president of the United States. And there are a great many others out in the different departments probably never see the president. Well, these men did. Now he calls a meeting of his cabinet, because this really is very serious. may sound silly to us today. Here's a queen won't come. Why not forget it and go on to something else, have some entertainment at the banquet, which I'm sure he did. But believe me, he calls a meeting of the cabinet, these men, for their advice. What are you going to do in an embarrassing moment like this? Well, the question was, verse 15, What shall we do unto the queen, Vashti, according to law? Because she hath not performed the commandment of the king, Ahasuerus, by the chamberlains. And apparently, friend, there was no law that they could exercise. We hear today a great deal about the fact that back in those days, women were chattels. And it is true that in many cases that was so. But apparently this woman had a great deal of freedom. And there's no law that could force her to come. So they're going to have to come up with a very severe and harsh law. And here it is, and this man Mamukan speaks. He's the spokesman here. And let me read verse 16. And Mamukan answered before the king and the princess, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes to all the people who are in the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. Now, I want to introduce this little fellow to you. The Mucan is a henpecked husband. He's really henpecked. And he's disturbed by this, because if the queen gets by with this, this little fellow wouldn't want to go home. He's a Mr. Milk Toast. And I don't think he had very much to say in his own home. I think his wife made most of the decisions. I think that's one of the reasons that he speaks out here. There are many men today that where they work, they take orders from others. They never express themselves. And when they're at home, the wife won't let them express themselves. And that's the reason that they speak when they're on a church board. That's the reason you have to listen to some language sometimes that makes no contribution to the welfare or any development of the kingdom of God here on earth because of the fact that they're just talking and generally make suggestions that are not good to begin with. Well, Mamukan is a little henpecked husband, and he's going to speak now because this is his chance. He's one of the princes in the kingdom, and he's this kind of a man. I heard the story about the Man, he was also a Mr. Milktoast, a little henpecked fellow. He came into his office one day where he worked, and he went around to the different people he worked with. He said, you know, my wife says I'm a model husband. And finally came to a hard-boiled secretary and said to her, you know, my wife says I'm a model husband. And everybody else was commending him. And this hard-boiled secretary, she didn't commend him, says, why don't you look that up in the dictionary? And you won't be so proud of it. He looked it up in the dictionary, and he found out what a model husband was. A model, he found out, is a small imitation of the real thing. (laughs) And that's what Mimucan is. He's a small imitation of the real thing. Now listen to what he says, verse 17. For this deed of the queen shall come to the attention of all women, so that they shall look with contempt upon their husbands, 
when it shall be reported. The king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall all the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes, and he's one of them, you see, who hath heard of the deed of the queen. Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. He said, I'll have a fight when I go home. In fact, the matter is, I think he'd come to the conclusion that if something wasn't done, he wasn't going home. Now listen to verse 19. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it may not be altered, that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another who is better than she. Well, this is extreme. But notice the reaction of the king and the others. When the king's decree, which he shall make, shall be published throughout all his empire, for it's great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and to small. And the saying pleased the king and the princes. And the king did according to the word of Memucan. For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province, according to its writing, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. Now, the decree was this. First of all, the queen is set aside. She's no more to be queen. And the reason given is because she's refused to obey the king. Therefore, a decree has gone out. And that decree is that in the kingdom that a wife is to honor her husband and the man is to rule. And apparently this hadn't been true before in the media Persian Empire, but now it's to be true and it becomes the law of the Medes and Persians and it cannot be altered or changed. Now we come to chapter 2. And I've labeled chapter 2, the first beauty contest. And here we have it. And in chapter 2, verse 1, after these things. After what things? Well, the things that have taken place in chapter 1, plus the fact that this campaign was carried on. Apparently, Xerxes couldn't get the queen to do what he wanted him to, but He got all the princes in the kingdom to join with him now in a great campaign against Greece. Now, we have to turn to secular history to fill this in, because there's no record here. It just says, after these things. Well, here are some of the things. This man, Xerxes, led a great army, and he crossed over into Europe. And he met the Greeks at Thermopylae. And that was unfortunate, because the secret of the strength of the Persians was in numbers. The individual soldiers were not so much. They were not well-trained as the Greeks were. And the Greek had emphasized the person, the individual. And as a result, one Greek soldier could have taken care of ten Persians. And so at the Battle of Thermopylae, only a few could get in the pass. And as a result... The Greeks got a signal victory over the Persians. It's not unfortunate from my viewpoint, but it was unfortunate for Xerxes that he carried on the battle at the place where he was doomed to lose. God had already said the power was to pass from Persia to Greece. And if you want to know whether God intervened or not, this man Xerxes had 300 ships that had gone around to come in from the rear to attack And they were in the bay at Salamis. And it just looked as if the next day, why, they would land and the attack would be from the rear, and they'd win that. But during the night, a storm came up, and it sank all 300 of the Persian ships. None were left. And all of the manpower they had was destroyed, was drowned. So that this man Xerxes now, he's been defeated, very much defeated. And so this man, in that condition, comes back to his palace here at Shushan. He walks up and down after these things, when the wrath 
of King Ahasuerus was appeased. He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Now, the law of the Medes and Persians can't be changed. Even the law that this king made, he himself cannot alter it nor change it. In that drunkard stupor, he had set aside this beautiful queen, and now he can never again have her. And after his defeat, in his loneliness, he walks up and down the palace, and he's moody. And not only that, this man had a mental aberration, as we shall see, and he's thinking of Ashtai. And the servants there know it, and they are watching him, and they know something now must be done. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, under the custody of Hegai, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their beautifying ointments be given them. In other words, these servants suggest a beauty contest. And now, who's going to win it? Who's going to win this contest? Well, why is this all given to us? God's letting you know that he's moving in the affairs of man, even in this pagan palace. He's going to overrule what's taking place. Now, we come to the fourth verse of this second chapter, and I'm going to read it. And their thought was, And let the maiden who pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. We now come to the story in verse 5. All that we've had before has just been the window dressing, has been the stage props. We were taken into a pagan heathen court, and we were introduced to the happenings there for a very definite purpose. It explains this beauty contest, and the beauty contest explains how Esther came to the throne. And because Esther came to the throne, why, it enabled her to intervene and intercede in behalf of her people, and an entire people would have been exterminated at that time had she not been there. Now we begin to see that it was the hand of God moving back in this palace. As we looked in, I called attention to the fact I see nothing spiritual there. It's as godless as anything possibly could be. It's a drunken orgy that's taking place. But God's overruling it. And now we're beginning to see what this book teaches. It teaches the providence of God. And God was arranging these events so that at the proper time he'd have someone there to intervene on behalf of his people. And that becomes very important. Now, somebody's going to raise the question about this beauty contest because they're going to say, well, Esther entered the contest. You mean to tell me God approves of beauty contests? Well, my answer is very candidly, no, I don't think he does. But my friend, when a child of God gets out of the will of God, gets way out yonder, God permits many things that he does not approve. And he will overrule through these events that the Christian is doing today that he does not approve. And again, it leads me to say this. One of the things that's important in the little book of Esther is to see that God does overrule and that most Christians today are living way out under on the fringe of the will of God. They're not really being directed by the will of God. They are not what we call in the will of God. They're way out there where God is directing them by his providence. And sometimes we call that the leading of God. Well, only indirectly. And this girl now that enters this contest is an illustration here of the permissive will of God. 
Now we are introduced to this man, Mordecai, and he belonged to the royal family of Israel. He belonged to the family of Saul, where also Kish was the father of Saul. And now this man belonged to that royal group, and one of the other evidences of it is verse 6, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And that delegation, actually, Nebuchadnezzar came three times against Jerusalem, and it was in these first two times that he came that he carried away the best of the people. That is, he carried away the princes and the leaders. Now, this man, Mordecai, belonged to that group. Apparently, as we shall see, he must have been a little boy at that time, but nevertheless, he belonged to that family, and he belonged to the family of Saul. Now, we are told here, he brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther. And Hadassah and Esther mean the same thing. Esther means star, by the way, and she certainly was a star, apparently a very beautiful woman. And we're told here that she was actually the stepdaughter of Mordecai. He brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took her for his own daughter. So he's raising this girl in his home, and she's a very beautiful girl. Now, he had a position here in the palace, by the way. We are told that the first thing about him, he was in Shushan the palace. And the question arises right here, the one question we'd like to ask him, what are you doing here in Shushan the palace? You ought to be back there in Jerusalem. God has given a decree for your folk to return, and that's where you should be. And here you are in a foreign country. Why don't you get back there? Well, he's out of the will of God, you see. And the name of God won't be mentioned in this book. He's not here at all, not in name. But you'll see that his fingerprints are here. And not only that, but someone has defined providence as it's the hand of God in the glove of circumstances. And believe me, his hand's moving in the glove of circumstances And friend, that's true in your life, and it's true in my life also. Now, he was in the palace. He had some minor position there. And in this minor position, he was able, though, to see these different girls as they came from the different sections of the empire. And he always made note of that, and I think made a comparison. I think he said to himself many times, Well, that girl is not near as beautiful as my stepdaughter Esther is. And so, as we move down through this section here, why, he is very much concerned now about entering her in the contest. And when he saw that she would be a winner, or at least he thought she would, he didn't know that, we are told, so it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree were heard, And when many maidens were gathered together under Shushan the palace to the custody of Hegai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house to the custody of Hegai, keeper of the women. Now, this man had charge of the contest. And these girls came, and Mordecai saw that each day. And he came to the conclusion that his stepdaughter Esther had a good chance. So he entered her in the contest, and I'm sure that she was for it. Now, let's be very candid. I must say that at this particular juncture, I do not have too much respect for this man, Mordecai. But I want to hasten and say this to you. I'm going to change my mind, and I'll eat my words, and I wish I hadn't said what I'm saying now, but I despise him for what he's doing now, To begin with, he's disobeying God. God had told his people not to intermarry. He's definitely breaking the Mosaic law when he entered this girl with the idea she'd become the queen 
of the king. And then the second thing, we'll discover that any girl that did not win had to enter the harem of the king. She became a concubine. We'll see that. Now, that's exposing this girl to an awful life. And he's willing to take that risk. And at this point, I do not have too much respect for Mordecai. But I want to say this now, lest you get a wrong impression. I'll change my mind. fact of the matter is, before we're through, I'll feel like throwing my hat in the air and cheering him because I think he took a stand for God. And I think probably we're going to be able to see that next time. Now, let's move on down in this section here. It's getting interesting now, I hope because Esther's being entered into the contest. She's turned over to the one in charge he got. Now, verse 9, And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness from him, and he speedily gave her her ointments for beautification. Women haven't changed either, and there was a great deal of makeup used. And I hope no one's going to take issue with me about the use of makeup and about whether she should enter this contest. Now, very candidly, I don't think she should have entered the contest. And we're going to find out she didn't need makeup. There are a great many extremists in this department today. A dear lady came to me when I was pastor in downtown Los Angeles, and I taught down there in the Institute. She came to me one day, and She thought that some of the girls there were using too much makeup. And she said that she didn't think a Christian ought to use makeup. And, of course, she put me out on limb and says, what do you think? Well, I said, very candid, let's go into who the woman is. I said, I know some women that makeup would improve them. And I think we all ought to do the best we can with what God's given to us. And I says that some women that don't use makeup look like witches to me. She took that personally. And I want to add this. She had reason to do that, too. I felt like saying to her, a little makeup lady would improve you a great deal. Now, I hope you don't want to argue about that, because all of this is actually out of the will of God, but God is permitting this, and it's by his providence now that she has been accepted by this man in charge. I think when he looked at her, He liked her very much, and he said, boy, she looks like a winner. So he put her up front, and that was a step. You say, well, that's an accident. Oh, no, friends. God, by his providence, overrules down here in our lives. Now, there was given to her such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens who were suitable to be given her out of the king's house. And he removed her and her maidens unto the best place of the house of the women. Now, that's by the providence of God. She's put up in number one slot. Now, verse 10, Esther had not revealed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not make it known. Now, suppose she'd made it known. Well, these people were well known in that area. They were people who, we'll find out later, the enemy said they got strange laws. And they worshiped the living and the true God. They did not worship idols. And that was known. And the minute that she'd reveal her nationality, she would reveal her religion. And these people are out of the will of God. And when you are, you don't boast of your testimony. When you're out of the will of God, you're not apt to be a testimony for the Lord. Remember old Jonah on board that ship running away from God? He hadn't told them he was a Hebrew. You know why? Because he'd given himself away, and he wasn't about to do that. And he's quite a talkative fellow himself, by the way. Now, Mordecai told her not to reveal who she was. Now, will you notice? And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Now, I have been told that when you're in the will of God that you can just sit back and rest and that you can, you know, say, well, I'm in the Lord's will, and we'll let things just work out. Well, when you're not in the Lord's will, you're not going to be able to take that position. If you do, it'll sure be a false position. And Mordecai knew that he was out of the will of God 
And so what did he do? Sit down and wait for the decision? No. Every day he walked up and down in front of the palace wondering how this thing would come out, wondering whether if he hadn't made a terrible blunder and mistake in doing this. And he had already bitten his fingernails back to his elbows. He is absolutely frightened of the thing that he's done, and he's worried sick. He's not sleeping at night, that is for sure. That's the condition of Mordecai. And when you're out of the will of God, you're not apt to rest back on your laurels and say, everything will be all right, I'm the will of God. Now, I recognize some people deceive themselves on that. I remember a man that had cancer and his wife rather rebuked me for not trusting the Lord. She said, we are resting in the Lord, and the Lord won't let him die, and all that type of thing. And that you're not trusting the Lord because you've been going to the doctors and you're resting on them. Well, the only difference is he's not alive today, and I still am. I believe that you can be in the Lord's will and go to the doctor, and I can assure you that's what I intend to do. And this idea of taking a false position and calling it faith, sometimes faith is not faith at all, it's foolishness. And God has never asked anyone to take a leap in the dark. Faith always rests upon facts. And here, this man's definitely out of the will of God. He hasn't anything to rest on at all. Now, will you notice verse 12? Now, when every maid's turn was come to go into King Ahasuerus, after she had been twelve months according to the regulations for the women, for so were the days of their beautification accomplished to wit, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odors and with balms for the beautifying of the women. Now, I've always felt that beauty parlors are misnamed. I tell my wife, you go in there looking, I think, very good. And you come out looking like a peeled onion. Or you look like the end of a mop that has been overused. I wouldn't want to call them beauty parlors. And I know that there are many men that spend a lot of time waiting for their wives. My wife can spend a long time in a beauty parlor. But my friend, here we have six months for one type of treatment, six months for another. That's one year in a beauty parlor. And I told my wife one day when I waited 40 minutes outside, and I hadn't come until, well, the time she'd sat. And I still waited 40 minutes. And when she came out, I said, My, you must be Queen Esther to spend that much time in a beauty parlor. Well, this is quite a beauty treatment, friends, one year. Now will you notice, verse 13, Then thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. In the evening she went, on the next day she returned unto the second house of the women. Now listen to this. To the custody of Sheasgaz, the king's chamberlain who kept the concubines. You see, if the girl didn't win the contest, she became a concubine. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she was called by name. You see what Mordecai had exposed Esther to? And apparently she was perfectly willing to do this. Now we're told in verse 15, Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her to his daughter, was come to go into the king... She required nothing but what Hegai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed, and Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them who looked upon her. Now, it was decided that Esther did not need to have a year's beauty treatment. Hers was a natural beauty. And they said, my, that's like gilding the lily to send her to the beauty parlor. She's already beautiful and lovely. And everyone that saw her, they said, my, there's the winner. <laughs> that's the girl that's going to win. She just stood out above everyone else, you see. And again, is the hand of God moving? Yes. And this is the will of God? No, sir. This is God moving by his providence. He's going to put her yonder on the throne next to the king because if she's not there, 
their whole nation is going to be destroyed. Not only that, God will be violating his word. And you want to know something? God never violates his word. Now, let's begin reading then here at verse 16. So Esther was taken unto king Ahasuerus into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, she's the winner. And again, how did she become winner? Was that by chance or accident? I don't think so. I think that it was by the providence of Almighty God. As we'll see in this next chapter, it was essential that God go before and make arrangements to protect his people. And this is the way that he did it. And he gives us this background, I think, for that reason and that reason alone. That is the explanation of why I see no spiritual interpretation in chapter 1 when we are just introduced into a great pagan palace and the banqueting hall where a drunken orgy is taking place. I see no spiritual significance there. All I see is that God is going to overrule, and God by his providence will overrule man down here, and he's going to overrule Satan also. Now, that ought to be a comfort to God's children today. Now she's become queen. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast, and he made a release from taxes to the provinces and gave gifts according to the bounty of the king. And in other words, he cut the taxes. She was so pretty, and he was so delighted with her that he cut the tax bill of everyone. And I wish we could have some kind of a contest in Washington today if this would help reduce taxes. But all they do is increase the taxes, not decrease them. But the king did that. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet revealed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther had the commandment of Mordecai just as when she was brought up with him. Now, this is a very interesting incident that's recorded here. This girl, she becomes queen. She was beautiful, and it was her beauty that attracted this man to her. And I think there's quite a contrast here between Esther and Ruth, for instance. Back in the book of Ruth, this man loved her. But I think that it was not just simply because of her beauty. Esther won on that basis and that basis alone. Now, the very interesting thing is here that Mordecai, who had some sort of a small position in the palace, he's now at the king's gate. And what does that mean? Well, the king's gate is where the judges sat. Remember old Lot down in Sodom? He was sitting in the gate. He had become a judge down there. And here's Mordecai, all of a sudden, is elevated from some minor position in the palace, maybe bookkeeper or something, and here he is out here, and he's a judge. Well, he's a Supreme Court judge, if you please. The courthouse in that day was not in the center of the town and in the center of the square as it was in my little town where I was born. And I'm sure that most of us were born in a county seat where the courthouse is in the center. But in that day, it was always at the gate for the simple reason. There's a wall around the city, and everyone either came or went through the gate. And so this was the place where they congregated and this man now is sitting in the gate. And the question arises, how did this man, Mordecai, suddenly become a judge when he had just a very small position? Was it because of his ability? Well, by the way, I think he's a man of real ability, but I don't think he got it that way. You see, Esther has just recently become queen. And I have a notion it happened something like this. 
the queen was sitting next to the king one day, and there was a lull in the business, and he began to talk with her. And she said, by the way, you have a man here in your kingdom, a man of real ability. Fact of the matter is, he raised me, and he's a very excellent man. He'd make a good judge if you ever have an opening. And the king says, well, that's quite interesting. I just had an opening. <laughs> I'm firing one up. I'll be glad to make him judge. And all of a sudden, Mordecai finds himself elevated to a place of judge. That's called nepotism today, and still the same thing. I went to visit a friend of mine who'd been elected to office, and I found out the whole family was working in the office. They all had jobs, by the way. There's many that are like that today. I guess that's human nature, but this is interesting. Now, that's another little incident that takes place that's rather important here. We see in verse 21, In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Big Than and Teresh, of those who kept the door were angry, and they sought to lay hands on the king, or Hagerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther informed the king of it in Mordecai's name. When inquiry was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Now, this is quite an interesting incident. This man, Mordecai, I was sitting at the gate. The crowds were coming and going through the gates. There were two men that he heard talking. He heard them mention the name of the king. And he cupped his ear so he could hear, and they were talking about a plot to kill the king. And so Mordecai immediately got word to Esther. And Esther, sitting on the king's right side, why, she reached over and said to him, said, By the way, you sure didn't make a mistake making this man Mordecai the judge that you have. And look what he's done. He's already discovered two men that are in your employ that are plotting to put you to death. And so the king says, Well, I'll get the Secret Service investigating that immediately. And they investigated and they found out it is true. And so what happened? Why, they arrested these fellas, and they didn't have a long, drawn-out trial. Again, it spent taxpayers' money. The king just ordered them to be put to death, and they were executed summarily. But that discouraged any others from attempting to plot against the king. Of course, they were very uncivilized in that day, and they just didn't go in for lawlessness and pampering criminals. They executed them immediately. But the thing that's important for us is... That was written down in the chronicles of the king, the log, as it were, the minutes, if you please, of the kingdom. But no mention was made of a reward to this man Mordecai because no recognition or reward was given to him. And I'm of the opinion that he probably turned that over in his mind several times. Well, I saved the king's life, and he could have at least have sent me a Boy Scout badge he could have sent me a lifesaver button of some sort. Certainly, I would deserve that. Well, very candidly, the thing was passed by. And why? Well, all of these things are taking place. God is giving this to us to let us know that he's overruling this. God, by his providence, is directing all of this.